0: So starting today, um, we have ended doing the series that we were doing on the spiritual disciplines or the spiritual exercises uh, that God wants us to be uh, partaking in in order to be healthy, and now we're going to enter a time that I'm calling the Vital Signs, where we are going to uh, assess ourselves, assess where we are. So vital signs are exactly what they seem to be, all living things have indicators that they are, uh, in fact, alive. So on the human being, it's very simple. When you go into the doctor, they always check your vital signs. They uh, they'll check your body temperature, your heart rate, your breathing rate, your blood pressure, or oxygen levels. All of those things are um, all of those things are vital signs. If you are not breathing, you're not alive. If if your heart is not pumping, you're probably dead they let you know the difference between that which is alive and that which is dead which is why when an emergency crew gets on the scene of an accident they are checking for vital signs is the person responsive are they responding are they still with us or have they perished so in one sense vital signs means exactly what we think it is so because the word vital has two two different connotations one of them is vital, as in uh, necessary, uh, it's required. So we could look and say, no heartbeat, dead, heartbeat, alive. Uh, No blood pressure, dead, blood pressure, alive. So in a sense, we can look at it from that vantage point that vital means necessary, and it's a nice black and white divider. But the problem is, when you go into the doctor's office, um, they are not taking your your temperature, they're not doing your blood pressure to assess whether you're alive. They know that you're alive. You walked in the door. What are they assessing? They're not assessing something black and white. What they are assessing is they are assessing the vitality of your life. So vital signs not only represents the things that you must have in order to be alive, but they also are measures of the vitality of uh, of the life that you have. Uh, so the, there's good blood pressure, there is bad blood pressure, and they are signs to how healthy you are. Good heart rates, bad heart rates, good oxygen levels, bad oxygen levels. I could go on. I'm not going to. So there's two ways that you can approach this uh, the next few weeks as we talk about vital signs. One, there are indicators of whether or not you are alive in the spirit at all. These are indicators that will show you whether you are living or you are spiritually dead. But as a good doctor does, I'm going to assume that because you walked into church on Sunday morning, most of you have made that commitment at some point in your life, and we are going to be assessing our vital signs within the secondary context, which is we are assessing the vitality of the relationship, of the life that we have with God. How strong is it? How healthy are we? So wherever you are, these uh, indicators will help you assess where you need to go from here. So the first vital sign that we're going to talk about is this one. It is the topic of intimacy. Intimacy. Um, intimacy, you may sit there and say, no, wait a second, how, what does intimacy have to do with being a vital sign? Okay, well, do not confuse the fact that we are talking about spiritual, and I before used uh, physical vital signs. We are talking about the spiritual vital signs, the signs in your spirit, in your life, that are going to demonstrate whether or not you are spiritually alive or how healthy your spiritual life is. And we are talking about intimacy. When we are talking about any kind of relationship in life, I don't care what relationship, good friends, uh, uh, close friends, intimate friends, uh, family. We are talking about coworkers. Th- th- we assess those relationships and their health and, their, and their, um, uh, the vitality of them by intimacy. The more intimate we are with someone, the stronger our relationship with them is. And it shouldn't surprise us that the same is true of our relationship with God. Intimacy. It is our, we are, the goal is not for you and I to merely have a relationship with God. That is not really what God intended. God wants us to have an intimate, meaningful, powerful relationship with him. Not just an acquaintance. God isn't looking for acquaintances. I mean, Jesus even specifically says that. He says that there are are those at the last day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not heal in your name? And I'm going to say to them, I do not know you. An awareness of God is not the same as intimacy with him. So we are looking this morning how close are you with God? How do you know the quality of your relationship? You know, the, vi- the, vi- the, uh, the vitality of a person's marriage is almost always, it's a, your marriage isn't stronger the more money you have. Your marriage isn't stronger the more healthy you are or the more you exercise. None of the things that we do typically associate with health, affect our marriage at all, but what is the vital sign of a strong marriage? Intimacy. Am I intimate? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you are in any relationship where your intimacy is fading, that relationship is dying. If you are in a relationship that's intimacy is increasing, then you have a relationship that is growing. Now, that doesn't mean that if this morning I assess myself and I look and I say I'm not as intimate with God as I used to be, that doesn't mean that I have to decide or determine that, well, that just means that I'm going, I'm in a spiritual decline. No, any more than looking and assessing the relationship with my wife as being less intimate than it used to be and deciding that that just means our marriage is over. The goal of assessment to figure out where we are because that helps us understand how we get to where we want to be God is looking for intimate relationships this morning with you if you have it if you do not it does not change his desire for you it does not change what he is doing so let's get uh, let's look at this uh, 2 Corinthians 13:5 Paul kinds of tells Paul kinds of Paul kind of tells us to do this He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So Paul here is indicating. That you and I, as he's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians, and he is saying you need to examine yourself and you need to ask yourself, am I really, truly in the faith? Am I in this thing? Because if I am, then Jesus is with me. I will have intimacy with the Father. I will have relationship with him. If I don't have relationship with him, it's because I failed to meet the test. I failed the examination. Do I have a relationship with God? It will show in intimacy. And this was God's intention from the beginning. was relationship. So what aspects determine intimacy? Well, there's three of them that we're going to look at, and I dare say... You might challenge me on this later, that's fine. I dare say I think that there are three um, pieces, three parts to intimacy. If any one of them is missing, you don't have intimacy. In your friendships, in your family, in your relationships, in your relationship with So let's begin with the first one. The most obvious one, of course, is going to be the concept of closeness. You cannot have intimacy without closeness. Now, normally when we say intimacy, we mean closeness, but really intimacy is a much bigger picture than closeness. Um, I can be close to people. I can know a lot of things about them and have an absolutely horrible relationship with them because I find them to be, frankly, unpleasant people to be around. Simple, physical proximity is not closeness. Every one of us knows at work, at a place of business, just being around someone does not mean that you get along. Being around someone does not mean that you appreciate them. Closeness that defines intimacy is based on relational closeness, not uh, the the locality of where you are. A husband that drives across country in a truck, does that mean that he cannot have an intimate relationship with his wife or his kids because he has gone more than other fathers who uh, stay closer by and are home every evening? No. What determines the health of those relationships is whether or not he is reaching out and attempting to make, to make uh, connections with those that he cares about. Is he calling his wife, sending selfies? Is he writing letters to the kids? Is he picking up toys uh, and bringing them back little gifts? Uh, Jenny just came back from a trip. First thing Bella said when she got back, what did you bring me? Why? We have relationship. Where's my stuff? That's, that's what she wanted to know. But That's that's a legit. You know what? If, if you go on vacation, I'm not going to come up to you and say, did you bring me anything? Because I don't know. At this point, we probably don't have that intimate of a relationship. It's, so what we find is, is that closeness, it's about a closeness of mind. It's about a closeness of heart. It's about connecting with people in a way that you allow them into your life and you, you actually bring them in and you get involved in their life. You, it, it requires effort. Intimacy never happens by accident. It, it it doesn't. I grow in intimacy because, well, I've chosen to do so. So just because I just because we're not locationally around, that doesn't mean that we can't be intimate. The same is true with God. I, I can't be. I cannot go walk into the gates of heaven right now. Well, I could, but I'd have to do some things to get rid of this body first, and I'm not interested in that this morning. I'll wait to do that naturally. When I die, I will go and I will face him. But until then, there is nothing I can do to walk in, walk physically into the presence of God. It just isn't going to happen. But yet, God wants to be close to me. Though we cannot be together physically, he is looking for closeness. So James chapter 4, verses 7 to 8 says this. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James always, boy, he's not always He's pretty blunt, let's just be honest. He is a blunt character, and that's why I love this book. He doesn't mix around. He looks and he says, listen, you and I need to understand that God is looking for people who will draw near to him. It is what he wants. Do not say to me, no one in here say to me, we can't do anything to draw near to God. We can't draw close to him. That is a lie, and I'm going to tell you why. Because there was a time when we couldn't draw near to God. There was a time, and In order to fix that, God sent his son Jesus to the earth. Christ came to us when we could not go to him. He suffered and died on a cross and removed our sin that separates us from God. The curtain in the temple was torn. That which divided us from God was removed. And now because of what he did, we absolutely can draw close to God he says, draw close to me. And he gives us a promise. If you draw close to me. Listen, this is the promise for you this morning. If you draw close to me, I will draw close to you. It's not a question of will he. He says he will. You make yourself available to me. I will be there. You open yourself up to me. You will find me. I am knocking, he says, I'm knocking at the door, let me in. If God isn't close to you, it's because the door is closed, and the only one that gets to open that door is you. It is up to you and I. Now, we put this, there's a broader context that we've got to um, apply to this, because there is an effort to it, right? We've got to open up the door, we've got to make that that choice. So we back up three verses to James uh, 4, chapter 4, Chapter 4, verse 4. And he says, You adulterous people, so this is before what we just read. You adulterous people. Um, An adulterer is merely a person of divided heart. That's what it means. Divided heart. So he's saying, You adulterous people, you with a divided hearts. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he sets the groundwork here. Before we get to the concept of draw near to me, we are told, look, you cannot have divided allegiances. Your heart is surrendered and given to one or the other. There is no fence walking. There is no half in the world and half out of the world. You are either in it or you are not in it. You are either with God and close to Him or you are far from Him. There is no alternative. There's no riding in the middle ground. And when we think we ride the middle ground, when we think that we're riding the fence, walking the middle ground, when we're doing that, we are deceiving ourselves. There is no both. Friendship with this is hatred towards God. And the world has made it very clear. Jesus tells us friendship with God makes you their enemy. So you have to choose. So then he goes on and he says, Now, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw close to God and he will draw close to you. So you and I, we make this, we make this effort. There's no partly his. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says that you can only have one master, and that is either God or Mammon. And Mammon, it always gets translated money, but it's a bigger, it's a it, Mammon was an actual God, like, like uh, Pluto was the, the, the god of debauchery and wine and celebration and partying. Mammon is the god, was is is the god of of finances and worldliness. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you serve this world, that is your God. Or you serve God. You serve Yahweh, Jehovah. And the other doesn't make you. You cannot serve both. You must choose. They are in direct opposition. In 1 John 2.15, John says that if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. You either love God or you love the world. They they cannot coexist, one or the other. So here here is, I want to ask this question. So how do we assess the vitality of our closeness with God? So I invite you, examine. You can write this down on the little thing. Examine what I give my heart and mind. What I think about and what I spend my time doing, that is what matters to me. I dare say, if you heard a story, which isn't, which isn't true, but if you heard three times a week, I was going out with a different woman other than my wife, and we were going to dinner. Jenny would rightfully wonder, why isn't he spending that time with me? Why is he giving it to her? Why is he offering that much of himself to this other person? You see, you cannot have a divided heart. No, in fact, divided hearts are going to lead you away from the relationship that you're supposed to be maintaining. It just, that's what it does happens all the time. So we look, and if you want to know if you're close with God, what do you think about? What's on your mind? What's on your heart throughout the day? Why do you do the work that you do? Why do you say the things that you say? Why do you act the way you act? Because there's a reason for all of those things. And either he is the reason you do what you do, something else, else. Once you have closeness, then you can move on to the second one, right? The second aspect that we need to talk about, and that is the aspect of trust. Again, this not not very shocking, that, that when you get close to somebody, you then have to decide whether you are going to trust them and build trust with them. We all do this. Friendships, again, they never happen. They usually, they never just happen. It is because at some point along the way, We choose to open ourselves up. We make ourselves vulnerable to someone else. Again, family, friends, marriage, whatever it is. Trust only comes when we choose to open ourselves up to trust someone, to, to share something with them and hope that they are going to be faithful, that they are going to be trustworthy. In a marriage, my goodness, I can't think of any more trusting relationship that you can enter into except maybe a business partnership. And that sounds insulting, but it really isn't because business partnerships, you are extremely vulnerable. What I mean by that is when you get married, see, all of my stuff was mine. My name was mine. Hey, my credit was mine. My house was mine. My car was mine. The moment I get married, it is no longer just mine. And way too many people have found themselves in situations where they open themselves up and they trust someone else and they find that trust abused. My cousin got married, and within the first year of his marriage, uh, while he was off working at the farm with my grandfather, his wife ran up $25,000 worth of psychic online 900-number uh, bills. She was calling the 900 numbers all day long while he was gone, ran up $25,000. It didn't work out between them. Shocker. Guess who got stuck with the debt? He did. Because in that relationship, he opened himself up, trusted her with his name, with his finances, with his future, and she abused it. That happens. A healthy relationship has trust. Both people trust each other and are trustworthy with each other. I trust my wife implicitly, explicitly, all of the implicitly. I, I completely, there's nothing. We've been through way too much. And the more we go through life, and the more trustworthy she is, and the more trustworthy I am with her, the more we trust each other, which brings us to a deeper closeness. The more we trust, the closer we can draw to each other. The same thing with your best friends, people that you've known all of your life. Same things with your family. When you know that you can rely on someone, you allow yourself to be more vulnerable, which allows them in deeper and closer to the heart of who you are. So in Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8, it says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. He says, my glory, my future, my reputation, my kingdom, everything, it's on him. It's all tied to him. And you know what? He's trustworthy. And so David is crying out. He's saying he's telling himself in his soul, but he's also telling the people, you can put your trust in this God. He has never failed us. He never will fail us. He never will leave us. He will guide us even during the darkest parts of our lives. We never have to fear, never have to worry. But it requires that we trust and that we are also trustworthy. He's, He trusts you. You realize that, right? I mean, I've talked about this a few weeks ago. God trusts you. He has given you his message. He has given you his word. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He has given you his power. He has given you his name. Just the name Christian. You are representing him as you walk, as you talk, as you act. He has put all on the line for you, his reputation, everything. It's yours. He has trusted you with it. So God looks and he says, all right, listen, I'm what, here's my promises. You can trust me. This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to trust you. And he's looking for us to say, all right, Lord, we will trust you, and we will be trustworthy. Because until I'm trustworthy, right, until I cleanse my hands, until I stop being double-minded, I'm not trustworthy. And as long as I'm not trustworthy, My trust with him cannot grow. If my trust cannot grow, my intimacy cannot grow. I have to trust him more. I've got to be trustworthy. And my trust of God is either, like a marriage, it's either growing or declining. It's never really staying the same. Each day, either strengthens your faith or weakens it. In Lamentations, I, there's a, a song. Almost everyone in here, I would imagine, knows it. But Lamentations 3:22 to 24 the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Uh, in the mornings, when we wake up, Jenny doesn't know what she's getting. She, she doesn't know. If I slept good, I may be smiles and fun. I slept bad, I might be grouchy. If I didn't sleep at all, just leave the house. She doesn't know. When the morning comes, she has no idea what Nathan she's getting. She really is just uh, on the roller coaster hoping for the best. That's true of all of us. We don't know each and each day our interactions with people. We don't necessarily know what we're getting in those people, even in our closest relationships. Sometimes we have fights with close friends. Those things, those things happen, but with God, man, it's, what, is, what does Lamentations say? His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. When you wake up, when you draw near to God, it is the same God who is there to receive you every time. It's only love. It's only grace. Even when you feel judgment, it's only so he can give you grace. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? Even when you feel guilty of sin and you come to God and you feel that guilt, it isn't God making you feel guilty. It is the awareness of who God is that is making you feel guilty. All God has for you is forgiveness. That's all he has. every morning. He doesn't give you half of his love yesterday and half of his love today. You got it all yesterday. You're getting it all today and you're getting it all tomorrow. All of it. It's new every morning. Refilled. Never runs out. That's that's worth trust. That's worth trusting. I'm not worth trusting and yet I got someone I I don't know how that happen, but I got someone to give me some trust. There's a, and all of us, we all pick someone we, we're going to trust, and we try to work it out. This is a God. You don't have to work this out. All he has is what you need. Everything that's his is yours. And he's just asking for the little that's yours to be his. So, how do we assess the vitality of our trust with him? So I put down, we need to examine how much control God has in my life. You, you can say that your, your spouse is a, is a safe driver, but if you don't let them drive the new car, <laughs> no, you don't. You don't think they are. Um. when you trust something or someone you hand over what's yours and you do so willingly how much control does god have in your life how much say does he have in where your finances go how much does he have what how much does he have to say in where you spend your time how much does he have to say with with what happens at, at 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 work I mean, if something immoral or something illegal came up at work, what would you do? Would you, would you, would you hide and pretend that it wasn't there? Would you participate in it, thinking, well, well, we'll sort it all out? Or would you stand for what is right and do what you know to be right, even if it meant you lost your job and you don't have one to replace it? What would you do? See, here's the thing. If you give God control of your life, you don't have to worry about the consequences. That's the reality. Where is your trust? It is either in yourself, it's in this world, it's in other people, which is uh, honestly – very shaky ground or it's in God either way we're trying to manage our outcomes that's all we're trying to do don't want to lose our jobs, don't want to hurt people's feelings whatever it is, we're just trying to when you trust God the outcome doesn't matter the consequences don't matter if someone came up to me today and looked at me and said you know what I don't like your wife don't like her. We're not going to be friends as long as you're married to her. Bye. Why? Because the intimacy and the trust in this relationship outweighs any consequence that happens in my life. You don't want to be around me because of my marriage? (laughs) See ya. I ain't breaking the intimacy. I ain't breaking the trust. Okay? How much control does God have in your life? Lastly, and this one is the one uh, that I think maybe you'll argue with me a little bit, the often underrepresented aspect of intimacy, and that is secrecy. (laughs) Inevitably, I say secrecy, and I know, I know in your mind you're going, there's no secrets in marriage, right? Uh, Intimate relationships, they don't have any secrets from each other, and you are right. trust each other you tell each other everything you share everything but when you share everything with each other that you don't share with others you now expect that other person to keep your secrets i have told jenny things she would better never tell any of you she's throwing it out there i don't want her to Mind to tell if I want to tell it. I'll tell you what. When you have intimate relationships, you grow in closeness. You trust each other with information. You don't trust anyone else. And it requires that secrecy now become a part of that relationship. A husband and wife or even close friends, we have knowing looks, right? Everyone has knowing looks because you'll see two people. They'll have a knowing look and you'll be like, what was that? And you'll ask them, what was that? And they go, Oh, nothing. And they're just smiling, no, nothing. There was something there that I'm not a part of. And I don't like not being a part of it, but they've got a little secret code that's going on between their eyeballs. That's because of intimacy. They know what they're thinking, they know what they already know where each other are. So it comes with intimacy. There's a nature that listen. Revelation 2.17 tells us God wants to have secrets with you. Did you know that? Because it's a part of an intimate relationship. So in Revelation 2.17, it says, uh, this is Jesus. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. God's got a secret stash. No, I'm dead serious. He's got a secret stash. I have good food that when certain people come over, it comes out of the cabinets. And it stays there. It was that way when I was a kid. Pringles, man. You don't share Pringles with just anybody. You give the Always Safe brand to everybody. But when you have someone you care about, you give them the Pringles. God's got a secret stash. He says, I got some hidden manna. And the one that conquers, I'm gonna give some to him, but that's not even that's not even all of it. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who has received it. So one of the aspects of eternity is you and God are gonna have a secret. That no one else gets to know about. Why is this important? It's important because it's a part of intimacy. God looks and he says, Hey, come here. Here's your pet name. Here's what I'm gonna call you from now on. So that when you hear that word, you know who it is calling to you. When you hear that word, you know what it means. Intimacy. They have right? I hate being called Nate. I don't like it. My name is Nathan. Deal with it. But when I told friends, they thought it was funny to call me Nate because it aggravated me. Now, one of the marks of my absolute closest friends in life There is one person in this world that calls me Nath, one, and it isn't my wife. If I hear someone say Nath, it's only my sister. That's the only person that ever calls. If I hear that, I know who's calling me. We come up with pet names for each other in a lot of relationships. Pookie, sweetums, I don't know what your nonsense is between you and your significant other. You got something, I'm sure. We have names for our kids. we have names for our spouse. sweetie, honey, whatever it is. And what you call your kids is usually different from your spouse so you don't mix those up. And that's because having unique special names it's, a, it's a, that, that, that little secret is a part of, a part of intimacy. So God looks and he says, hey, part of eternity is there's going to be a name. Only you and I are going to know it, you and me, that's it. I will call you by that name, and you will know it's me when I call, when I say that name. No one else is ever going to know it. <laughs> this is going to sound really weird, but that is extremely comforting to me. I can't wait to find out what that name is. name that my God and he alone will call me for eternity. What's his pet name for me? And, And God sees everything, right? He knows everything that we do wrong. He knows all of our mistakes, our weaknesses. But he still wants us to share our secrets share them with them, But God doesn't only want us to share secrets with him. Look at what Amos, Amos, how often does that happen? Book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God that are only meant for his people. They're only meant for you. When you you realize this and you realize that secrecy is a part of intimacy, all of a sudden one of the troubling things that Jesus says actually comes to make a lot of sense. One of the things I used to have a problem with, and a lot of people I know that aren't Christians, they they have a problem with this, is that Jesus, as he's walking along, he's talking in parables, and and, the, and there are people that don't understand him. The Jewish leaders think he's nuts. They're like, they're like, they don't even make any sense, these stories you're telling. And the disciples come to him, and they basically ask, why are, you, why are you speaking in riddles? What is the point of this? And Jesus says something that, well, if you don't put it within this context, might sound controversial. He looks and he says, I speak in parables in order to confuse those who do not know my Father. And that sounds like insulting. It isn't. He's saying that the truth, the secrets of God, are something that are only shared and only understood by those who draw near to him. You you can't know his truth. You can't know his heart. You can't know his will. You can't even begin to understand it unless you get to know him first. It's very easy to sit on the outside and look at other people and judge their intentions and decide what you think the reason is they're doing whatever they're doing. But then you get to know them and you find something, a a completely different reason. Have you ever done that? Have Have you ever been offended by something that someone did? And yet when you found out why they did it, it completely changed your opinion of them or whatever they did. It just changes. Why? Because now you understand. You see, the things that God does doesn't make sense unless you know who God is. Unless you know him, you're not going to understand the intentions behind it. It's a secret. that God reveals his secrets to those who are close to him. How do we we assess whether we've got secrets with God? Because I ain't got a white stone at home yet. How how, how do I know? So here's how you know. Examine how much of what you do is for God and only known by him. It's not my standard. Jesus set this standard out in in, uh, Matthew chapter 6. You can read it later normally when we read that chapter we read about giving praying and fasting that's the order of Matthew chapter 6 giving praying and fasting and we look which are those uh, spiritual exercises we just spent so long talking about and he spends some time on each one of those three but there is something that that connects all three in that chapter Matthew 6 something connects all three uh It is in giving, it is in praying, it is in fasting, and that is secrecy. When you give, do it in secret so that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not stand up in front of everybody and yell out loud words. No, instead, go to your closet into the dark alone Pray there in secret so that your Father who sees what is secret will reward you and fast. When you fast, do not walk around with your hair disheveled and your clothes hanging off of you so everybody knows you're suffering for Jesus. No, put oil in your hair, look nice, present yourself as if you are doing nothing. And your Father who sees what is done in secret reward you. That's not to say that we don't ever share things. I share things. I share great things that Jenny's done for me up here. I I share good things. I share share amazing things I love about my kids. I share those things. I don't share everything. Some things are just for us. There are things that I'm not going to tell you about my kids. They're They're just about us. It's none of your business. That's okay. It's the same with God. There are things that God has done for me that I'm going I'm to shout from the rooftops. I'm going to tell you all about it. And there are things that God has done for me they were just for me. Book of Revelation. God, here, here they are revealing all of this stuff. And uh, John's writing it down. And th- do you realize that there's a point in there where the angel tells him, ah, don't write that down. That was just for you, John. Don't write that down. Now, if you're like me, oh, I hate that part of that book. I don't like knowing that there are secrets out there that someone else gets to hear that I don't hear. I don't like that. But there was a secret right there. He told John something it was just between them. And John says, okay, I'm not going to. And he writes it basically. And that's why, maybe that's why I'm angry is because John's like, and God told me something he didn't tell you. And then just moves on. Right? <laughs> you probably called him by his pet name. I, I don't know. I mean, John's kind of a jerk for doing that. What's a, just keep, if, it, if it's just for you, keep it yourself. Oh, I got a secret. Why do you do? How much of what you do is for God? And how much is only known by him? How much How much does no one else know? What service do you do for him in his name that no one in here knows about? And you're never going to tell him because it's just something you, it's, it's just for him. It's not for everyone else can have secrets now that's okay I want to close with this thought it was allegedly said by or written by or said by A.W. Tozer he said God does not have favorites but he does have intimates we are told by James that God does not play favorites He wants us all equally. He may appoint us to different places, but it's not because he wants one person more than he wants another. But let's be honest. We've all looked around in Christianity, in our families, maybe even in the church, and we've seen God's blessing on other people's lives, or we see them doing something, or we see a relationship with God that we envy in them, and we wish that we had it, and we sit back and we wonder, why why don't I have, why, why why can't I do what they do? Why, why do I not have that kind of intimate relationship? Why doesn't God speak to me? Why doesn't he lead me the way that he leads these other people? Why doesn't he bless me the way he blesses the other people? It, listen, it isn't because they're his favorite and you are not. It is because they have opened themselves up and allowed him to draw into their life to do things that you may have held him at arm's length to do. He will not force you to do anything. If you do not see, if you see in someone else something you don't see in yourself, there's only one reason they have it and you don't. It's because they have built intimacy with him. And the solution is simple. Jesus makes it clear. If you want it, ask, seek, knock. Come and get it. Draw close to me. I will draw close to you. God is looking for intimate relationships this morning. And so, that being said, normally when we do the invitation, we invite you to come down and share whatever's on your heart. Nope. Right now, this invitation is you and God, where you stand right now. If you need, if you need to respond in any way, you close your eyes, you make that commitment right now. It's just between you and he. It's not about us. We don't need to know a thing about it. Let's stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation together.